One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Namaste, my friends. This is Alec Vishal Rubin here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Today, we are truly blessed to hear from a master in his trade, Richard Freeman, senior student of Patabi Joyce Guruji. He's among the master Ashtanga teachers that bless us with his presence today. Stay tuned as we dive deep into the theory and philosophical teachings that our yoga practice reveals within. Thank you for tuning in to Yoga Revealed Podcast. My name is Alec Rubin, and it is such an honor to sit across from master student and incredible dedicated teacher to the practice of Ashtanga Vinyasa, Richard Freeman. He keeps the thread of yoga so pure and alive here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Thank you, Richard, for inviting me into your home and um, taking space out of your day to share with us the, the, the yoga as it has been found in you. I'd like to start out with um, just kind of getting a little synopsis for perhaps those who are unsure of where you come from and how long you've been practicing yoga when you first, uh, first got onto the mat and, and uh, how your yoga journey began to reveal to you mm. what it is. Long time ago, I guess. <laughs> and uh, when I first went to college in 1968, um, that was my chance to get a yoga mat. Well, actually, they didn't have yoga mats. They were yoga blankets <laughs> um, made of cotton. And I'm sitting on one right now. In fact, this is a nice old one. And uh, sticky mats weren't around until I think the mid seventies or something. Um, and so I was in college, and very because it was the sixties, I was a very inspired student um, <laughs> in terms of um, you know becoming uh, awakened and enlightened. And so I. started my practice from books. Um, I actually, in 68, taught a small yoga class at my college, um, though I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I know yet what I'm doing. Um, but I was very inspired. And uh, we just used the various materials that were available. Um, there were a few books on yoga that were out. Uh, there was, uh, of course, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, mm. which was a very big book in the late 60s. Mm. Um, there was an edition called The Psychedelic Experience by um, Timothy Leary, mm. the man who later became Ram Dass. Mm. Um, and um, I found a teacher 
uh, in early 1969, uh, in over the winter, 68 to 69, uh, who was a, um, a Zen Roshi in Chicago, um, at the Chicago Zen Temple. And uh, they only saw one yoga posture there at the Zen Dub. It was <laughs> uh, but they taught it very well. And so um, my experience from the very beginning has been uh, eclectic in the sense that I was very inspired by, say, the Bhagavad Gita, um, by the uh, what we knew of, you know, various um, bhakti uh, scriptures and uh, also tantric scriptures, hatha yoga scriptures, um, from both the uh, what we call Hindu, which is actually a very broad, inaccurate category, and then the, the Buddhist schools of practice. And so I've had, uh, I guess, the good fortune, at least in my opinion, of um, confusing the two together and uh, bridging you know, any uh, theoretical differences between them. And I find that uh, being slightly eclectic in my practice actually makes me look deeper mm. because I can't really surrender to a single formula, but I like to look deeply into each formula and then practice and look at, you know, this is experience, an experience that's indescribable as being described and formulated. And so, but I found that it's very easy for myself and then others too, to get the description confused with what they're trying to describe, which is kind of too wonderful for words. Mm. And so I was an eclectic from the beginning. Mm. And yet I'm fairly, uh, you know, I can kind of pretend to be orthodox at the same time. <laughs> And I think uh, that, you know, that's the paradox. You, know, you can really stick with, um, say, one teacher or one thing, and you eventually, if it's working, you, know, you can see all the others in it. And of course, we know that one school of practice or one religion, they, don't, it doesn't, they claim to include all the others, but they don't really. It's something that is more, you know, the, that which is more profound in them is mm. what includes all the others. Um, so. And so the school that inspired you to focus more upon was Ashtanga, Vinyasa. Eventually. Eventually. Eventually, oh yeah. <laughs> it took a while. It took a while. And uh, it was not until, um, let's see, 19 years later uh, that I met Batavi Joyce. Uh, having heard about him, and we clicked. And, uh, you know, his methodology, the uh, Ashtanga Vinyasa, is rather rigorous. Uh, fortunately, at the time, you know, I was, I'd studied a lot of postures in yoga, and I could do it. And uh, so we really connected on a, not on the level of the postures, but he was, you know, in a way, very interesting mystic and practitioner. And so we uh, connect on a level of philosophy and uh, internal practice. Did you ever get to study with his teacher? Krishnamacharya? No. <laughs> I uh, studied briefly with Deshikachar and uh, more extensively with Iyengar mm. and E.G. Mohan. And I, I've met a lot of you know, Krishnamacharya students. Um, but I never met him. So but, uh, he must be quite a guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So with such an array of um, styles of yoga around today, especially in 2016, mm -hmm. there must be. I wish that you could speak to a common aim that all of these styles we can meet in. Mm -hmm. What? would be the aim of yoga. I could ask you, what is yoga? Yeah, but what is the aim <laughs> of yoga? Yeah, you've got to choose some words here. Um, 
the aim of yoga is to um, kind of um, wake up to what's happening, um, what's really happening. Um, otherwise, um, we're unhappy and we don't really see how not only do we connect, and you know, are we as two people, are we as a, you know, living beings connecting with uh, all the other beings around us on this little planet. Um, but although we live in, if we don't connect that way, which is the yoga, um, then we live in our heads, basically. And, and we have a kind of theoretical existence where we have a theoretical self that our mind, which makes up good stories, makes up. The story of Richard, <laughs> which is, I don't know whether it's a comedy or a tragedy or totally boring or what, but you know, and there are many stories within that story, but none of those stories is actually me, and none of the stories, uh, and all those things are partial theories, and the same in our, and what yoga is, is that something goes on deep inside um, that wakes you up. Into the, the and everybody kind of knows something about it. Everyone's had a little taste of that. But it wakes you up to the absolutely astonishing, uh, wonderful nature of things. Uh, and it wakes you up in such a way that you don't really, uh, that you're satisfied. You know, even if you're not advanced at yoga. Even if you don't meet your checklist of what waking up means, you know, like my, the top of my head doesn't glow like the sunshine. Maybe I better work on it another ten thousand lifetimes, or you know, I still have thoughts. And, but it, what it does, it, yoga is this way of um, almost enjoying um, little things. Almost like a connoisseur would, even, um, and then at the same time being utterly, you know, seeing yourself in other beings, other people, and of course then other. Sometimes it's easier with animals to see yourself than other people. Um, you know. But uh, and that's quite nice. <laughs> And then again, you know, then yoga gives you a sense of humor in that uh, you sort of say, well, if, when you see yourself in other people, the, the mind always gives you a total opportunity to misinterpret that. The ego take, comes in and takes over and says, well, yeah, all beings are really Richard Freeman. Okay, rather than seeing that <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Um, and so what yoga is, it wakes you up. In other words, you're just waking up out of this kind of semi-dream states. And the process of waking up is extremely joyous. Um, no matter what's, and there are many systems of yoga, and some would, you know, give you 10,000 stages of waking up. And others would say, oh, that's all similar, it's all the same, waking up. And, you know, at you're happy, you know, even if you you find out from your teacher that you're a raw beginner, it's like, yes, yeah, love it. <laughs> yes. 10 million more lifetimes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that that moves into another great question that had come to me. I was feeling, what does happiness look like in the yoga practice? Or perhaps, what does contentment look like in the yoga practice? Right. What does it look like? Um, you know, what? How does the smile look on the face? <laughs> um, there's a well in the yoga practice. I think one of the best ways to talk about it is how the prana moves in the body, um, and so prana is basically. It's usually trying to as life force or 
internal breath, and it, it's really all the sensations that you have uh, are prana. And so it's what you're really experiencing right you know, in front of your awareness, you know, at the front, is sensations. If you kind of slow down all the theory making, there's just sensations, uh, which are prana. And prana is really just a vibration. Mm. And when it's not, when it's just, you allow it, just observe it without needing to change it due to some theory about what it is. Now you see that the nature of that vibration is contentment, is joy, or is, you know, it's hard to say anything is runs the danger of even having a concept of that. But just letting that vibration unfold is given space. And this has an effect uh, throughout the body, where the body becomes almost uh, invisible or luminous or nice nectar. Mm-hmm. Yet, you're still able to do things if the occasion should arise, or necessity should arise. <laughs> Answering your emails. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and what's that look like? I don't know. It's... Mm. But there's, when um, there's this kind of new vision of things that the yoga gives you. Uh, it's kind of an in, a vision that things are all interconnected. Um, that there's not really a separate thing out there. You know, it's almost like the whole thing is, and I can't say you, or the whole thing is emptiness, or the whole thing is God, or, because what do I mean by those words? Or the whole thing is prana vibrating, Pure awareness, pure chit, you know. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Just practice and find out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Segwaying into your personal practice and how it has evolved from college to meeting Vitali Guruji mm-hmm. to being into the daily life where you've embraced injuries in the past and you've healed. How do we sustain a yoga practice over the course of our life? Mm, yeah. <laughs> this is where it helps to have a um, teacher or a lineage of teachers, or a number of a number of teachers that um, allow you to look at your experience deeply, um, because life is full of you know change, and obviously the body um, changes. And so, in yoga practice, particularly when we're thinking, most people think of hatha yoga. You know, where you're standing on your head and doing bastrika, fellows breathing, and, uh, you know, trying, you know, making a good effort. And um, so there's become, there naturally develops an attachment to feeling strong and feeling good in the body, which is totally natural. And then what eventually happens is there's some injury, you know. Whether you deserve it or not, you know that's a totally irrelevant uh, thing. But it happens, um, or sickness, and then old age, which <laughs> creeps up on you. <laughs> but it always arrives, you know, a little bit sooner than you thought it was going to. And then it seems that death comes. You know, that's what. Uh, if you look around, you know, where are all the really old yogis? gone. Um, what's up with that? And, uh, and so one of the, the beautiful things I think about uh, lineages and then communities or sangha, you know, where you're, you know other practitioners or if you're really fortunate you're locally 
you know a number of practitioners and you practice with them on occasion, uh, just to see that you're all in the same boat, uh, same situation, uh, you let go of your identification with the body. Because if you identify with the body, then there's trouble coming. Call disease, old age, and death. <laughs> um, but instead, the the kind of a community, that sense of camaraderie mm. uh, with other people who, it turns out if you communicate with them, really have exactly the same situation as you. You know, they might have a unique injury in their body, you know, like it could be my hip joint and your neck, or, you know, <laughs> but the same process is beginning. <laughs> and, uh, and you learn to actually see with clarity and to let go. And even if the body is decrepit, and even in my case, if you can't do the same postures you did 20, 30, 40 years ago, and eventually we're all going to have to let go of all of our yoga postures. Mm. So I've read. Uh, the, the very process of letting go is wonderful. You know, it's just like, it's just, you know, say so you, you collect together your the entire world through vinyasa. It's almost like you're picking up pieces of your psyche and you're balancing, you know, the prana, this part of your body, and getting all of your affairs in order. And then finally you do what's called nyasa, or sannyasa, is you just put it down and let go. And in that letting go, it's like, it's, it's like sunshine. Mm. Ah, freedom. And so um, we're all doing that. And, uh, the nice thing about time is one, the terrible thing is it's kind of the nice, the terrible thing is you start to see uh, the misery that misperception causes. That most of the beings that we associate with you know, mm. have different phases. <coughs> terrible misery, and then you too, and me too, and then um, the yoga actually teaches you how to, with a sense of compassion for mm. others and yourself, mm. uh, let go. Mm. And in the process of letting go, you wake up, and you, you then develop, you know, this really nice taste um, for the little things yeah. <laughs> in life, you know, just sensation itself is like wow, you know. And you're much easier to please than uh, when you were younger. <laughs> when you were young, you needed things. You know, I need the uh, universe yeah. to understand. Yeah. And then, you know, as we get older, we're you know, it's like wow, I, I'm getting to inhale again. This is fantastic. You know, the, the, this thought brings up um, a yoga sutra to me that I'd love for you to tap into. I've been reading it in the book, How Yoga Works. Mm -hmm. I forget by who it's by, just seen, I believe. And uh, it's Yoga Sutra 2.5. Avidya consists of a transient object that seems to be everlasting. Confusing mm -hmm. misery is happiness. Confusing an impure object is pure. Mm -hmm. Confusing the non-self as having self. As being self. It's self. Kind of so it's, you know, things that cannot seem to last seem to us as if they will in that yeah. way. Yeah. And so how, how is it that, you know, we can continue to approach such a, um, philosophical ideas within yoga and embrace them with the yoga sutras? How, how can we take the yoga sutras into our lives more than just reading them? Because personally, I read some of the sutras and they come in one ear and they just right out. <laughs> right out the other yeah. and i have to like unpack a sutra for yeah. weeks in order oh. to even like try to grasp yep exactly. it just takes time it just takes time the yoga sutra is so the traditional way of studying something like the yoga sutra is to memorize it which is in a sense it's not in rhythmical verse more difficult to memorize than many of the other scriptures. 
because usually they're written in verse, and so at least there's rhythm, so you can kind of walk down the street and you can kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, do it with a drum beat, you know, and remember. But um, so you learn it, and then you you almost treat it like mantra. Uh, you're just going turning it over and over and over again, and a lot of the um, and then there's some verses that click with you. And those are, that's good. You gotta get a foothold or a toehold in the whole thing. And you go into the ones that click with you and you just keep investigating that. And then you just take a, occasionally in some new verse and then you try to understand it. And, uh, it's not easy. But that particular thing, you know, ignorance means, it's called avidya in the Yoga Sutra. Not knowing the nature of reality is the cause of suffering. And if you knew the nature of reality, then you wow, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's like, it's almost funny, it's fantastic. It's like uh, a very beautiful uh, joke in a way. Not, not a joke in that, you know, suffering is deep and real, but it's so wonderful that it's insubstantial and that there's nobody getting hurt in these you know even in ourselves it's like well I'm getting hurt by the misery of my body or the insanity of my mind but keep look 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 and it's just the misperception that you're in there that somebody's in there that is a separate little person and mm. entity yeah but it's there's actually not a separate person there, it's just us, <laughs> pure awareness. And then uh, that Purusha, just, yeah, Purusha, which is pure awareness. And so it's easy to think of, you know, what is Purusha? You then define it as a separate self, which is the whole teaching is that there is no separate self. That's a paradox. And <laughs> so a lot of these uh, philosophers are kind of like, you know, they're, they're semi-comedians in, you know, in a very compassionate, they're compassionate comedians and they have no choice because, you know, there's basic ignorance. Um, and it's not like you go to university and memorize and study yoga philosophy, although that could be an excellent way to study, but just to study it as a subject won't take you into the heart of it, which is, I couldn't say it's you, mm. but it's the not you <laughs> we're taking it into the... Mm. And so many of the valid traditions, this is what's at their heart. And of course they're expressed in different ways by different cultures and different peoples at different times. But there has to be that. Because, you know, and as each of us start to, we start to understand it, we go, and we kind of develop our own semi-private language about it. Like we do with, you know, things in our life that are worth Like we do with, you know, things in our life that are worth You know, they all have a special name. You know, they special names, you know. And so, and then as we communicate with others, we start to see, same things going on. The same process is going on. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the other day, what is karma? Mm -hmm. And how is karma mm -hmm. tied into our practice? Mm -hmm. By practicing or by not practicing? Yeah, either could be karma. Like the Gita says, inaction can also be karma. Because if you have inaction due to fear or repulsion, doubt, you know, all these things, that'll have consequences. And it might be the right thing to do at a certain time, like picking at a scab and the doctor stop doing that. And you stop, okay, that's the inaction made the, the little wound heal. But then other times, inaction is a terrible thing to have, you know. Um, and so that's play by play, circumstance by circumstance. But an interesting thing is that kare, to do, um, is considered 
be a sacred thing. It's a vibration. You know, it's, a, it's a dialectic and it's a vibration or changes within these structures that manifest in the world. And the more that there's intelligence, uh, then the more skillful is the action. And skillful action um, ultimately reveals, just like vibration of prana reveals pure consciousness, so skillful action is like a, just another level of that vibration, that dialectic of prana, or our intelligence is what we do in the world, or don't do in the world, but it's vibration, back and forth. Because you do something, you get feedback from your environment, <laughs> and then you correct, you know, you tune it, fine tune it. And then occasionally it comes where you just gotta like try something. You try it, you know, you have a, an intention, like, you know, formulated. Even though you know it's beyond formulation, you still gotta formulate it because that's what the mind does. So you make an intention and you think, well, the best way seems to be this. And you never know for sure. There's always this huge cloud of unknowing that surrounds us mm -hmm. and our, even our, you know, I'm sure that this is going to work for you, go gluten-free, I'm sure you become happy in two days, and you don't know. And so one, the yoga lets you rest in not knowing, that's neurota, you know, from the yoga you don't know, but you're somehow like, you just know that it's you know in a sense of direct experience that it's nectar, it's life. But you don't know with any kind of absolute certainty. You have relative certainty, you know, that which we you know we have science for. But still you experiment, you get feedback, and you make large or small corrections. Even in the practice of yoga, you know, although we receive the teachings and lineages. You have to figure out what the technique is really for, and then how to work with it in the unique circumstances that you have. So it's, it takes that kind of, um, they call it, it shraddha, or trust, faith, shraddha. And it's always like the first, the first step. Mm. So with all the nectar, perhaps, I don't know what the opposite is. Hala hala. Yeah. Mm. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's an interesting word. Um, hala It One is a poisonous herb. Okay, to be avoided. Cooking or collecting, <laughs> collecting uh, spices. <laughs> it's uh, also, uh, it was the result of, the initial result of practice is that you, this toxin comes up in that you start to feel almost the insanity of your mind from when you first start to practice. And this is actually a good sign if you have the faith just to hold it, not reject, accept it or reject it, but to hold it. Um, and so that's one of the keys you know, that makes it a real yoga practice is that the practice brings up a kind of anxiety, a mm. kind of fear, a kind of intuition about how profound impermanence is, you know, like, what does that mean in my life, impermanence? Well, <laughs> it's one, you you and everybody and everything is like, what's its value? Mm -hmm. It's not going to exist in 10 billion years, or 200 billion, whatever. And you feel that, you go, oh, shit. <laughs> and that's good. And then, if, if it's actually the beginning of yoga, then that is like a, there's this little bit of compassion that lets you just be there not knowing what to do. You know, is there anybody even to do it? But still feeling the hala hala. This is so in the myth about hala hala, they churned the ocean to make nectar, but they got the opposite. Shiva comes and he goes down to the, and he scoops up all the hala hala and he slurps it into his mouth and 
holds it without swallowing it. So his throat turned blue. And this was like a profound teaching in that mess. And it's really what the practice of meditation is. Mm-hmm. Practice of yoga, nirota, mm-hmm. is really holding palhala, or whatever it is, in the space of your awareness, like a compassionate, just like you, you know, if your kid were sick, you just hold them. Mm-hmm. And so you hold your own fear, your own anger, you hold other people's fear and anger in the space of your own awareness, your own compassion. And another meaning of the word halala, <laughs> I'm not really thinking about this, <laughs> it's the holiday season. Oh, it's, I think the English word holiday might relate to the word halala. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> um, but it also means a whirligig, like you know, the wheel of samsara, or like a, a Ferris wheel or a merry-go-round. Uh, is a halaha, and I think it sounds like the English word hell. It's a halaha, and that's where you you grab on and you're just like taken on a ride. Going on it. But it's a ride of circles where everything loops the mind going in these loops of being stuck, you know, stuck with desire, stuck with the impossibility of getting rid of desire, mm. tortured with being unable to live up to an ideal that no one can live up to. And it's just the torture of being a human being. Mm. And that's the difficulty in any of the good lineages of yoga, you're going to come to that stage. And a lot of lineages will be very gentle about it, but there you are, or others will just throw you in. And at that point, you know, where the the lineages then start to connect to each other, Mm. because they're really, you know, just variations on a, a theme. You know, I feel that I've spent most of my own life tormented by myself and anxiety. And only recently, over the last two, three years, have I watched those thoughts stop or still slow down. And I think that's just from my own practice and Mm -hmm. showing up. But at the same time, what tips could you, or state of being could you offer our listeners who feel anxious in the day-to-day or just like having to go 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 you know Mm -hmm. i think that's a a big perhaps delusion that comes with the western world oh yeah it comes with technology uh, yeah one is that practice and a lot of practices you can take into the field with you Sometimes I, I know in the Ashtanga yoga world, uh, people think, well, I have to practice two hours. I have to do the entire series or two or three or four or five, six series. <laughs> and if you have the luxury of time and good health <laughs> and perhaps youth or something, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You know, that's wonderful. Um, but then again, you know, occasionally circumstances will catch up with you can't. But if you can just do five minutes, or you can do your mantra on in the taxi, on the bus, or you know, in your jail cell, or <laughs> in the ambulance, um, those are also practices. And so a lot of the, the practices um, can give you a, a nice sense connectedness and uh, at least some calm uh, even though you're in the middle of a storm and uh, mm. find those little mm. things and it could be just a, not even a mantra you know it could be just a verse from the yoga sutra or a great poet or a simple breathing you know pranayama 
is you know all those breathing mm. things in which you um, unravel the prana from being stuck in different ways, mm. and they're very simple pranayamas that don't require that you be that you're in a monastery or that you're physically fit, but they're simple ways of just delighting in the fact of your breath, mm. even if it's a little bit choppy or asymmetrical. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of nice mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to the alternative. <laughs> and, and so yoga really, you know, in a way, it, it, again, it, it takes you back to appreciating just little, little things. Mm. Right. Rather than, even though you start to, you know, I see the big picture finally, but yeah. <laughs> we've heard that before. <laughs> what is the Dharma of the yogi? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends. You can put it in very general terms, because uh, the Dharma of the yogi is uh, to wake up and then uh, to be yoga. Mm-hmm. And then you could extend that, well, the Dharma of the yogi, we, if they're waking up, is they're going to all of a sudden see other beings and they're going to all of a sudden find that if other beings are unhappy there'll always be that that fact to make them want to do something to help other beings so the dharma of other yogis is going to be like the bodhisattva in hmm. Mahayana Buddhism is to help others which is you know delightful even though the, and then you find well there's no end of helping because there's no end to how you can help other beings Uh, and in a general sense that's our dharma Mm -hmm. and then there's dharma in the sense of your individual dharma which means you got to do what you got to do and uh, so like the Gita saying you know you have to do your own dharma in doing it imperfectly and so for many kind of viewers sitting down and figuring it out it's always going to be imperfect your fulfillment of what you think is your life's work and your, you know. mm-hmm. say my dharma is to write poetry you know okay, well <laughs> it can't be good enough you know and, and then so it's better to do yours imperfectly than somebody else's perfectly somebody else's you see from an external point of view so it's in a formula in your mind and so I'll do 108 some citations every day and I'll chant some the Quran every morning you, know, and you can do that but if at the same time you're neglecting your friend you know you're neglecting your sick parents or something because you can't bear the thought of them, then you're not getting you're not doing anything mm-hmm. You're avoiding your own dharma, mm. which is to respond to the circumstances around you compassionately and intelligently. Mm. And then that word also is funny because at the end of the Gita, Krishna says, uh, "You, all dharma parikyaja, all around you just let it, you release it, and then you just come to me." In other words, so the love, which is other beings, you let go of all this formulated duties and mm. obligations and you just come to me and the place to find me in that sense is in other beings so mm. back to the bodhisattva and the dharma wow. Yeah. Wow. segueing topics how do you feel about the commercialization of yoga mm. And what do you feel about the future of yoga? Of yoga? Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful. <laughs> so commercialization is kind of it's been made into a commodity mm-hmm. by some people who see that there's money in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, you know, it's a nice, nice thing. And if and so I see. One, the positive side is if we can get more and more people to try it, 
um, the better. Because a certain percentage, maybe 10% of the people who try yoga uh, will go, wow, and they'll get a sense of what it's really about. Uh, then the question is, is if you make it so that a lot of people want to do it, is it yoga anymore? And that's all, that's an open question. Wouldn't the duty be on the teacher? Yeah, the duty. But then you've got to communicate to that teacher. You know, it's got to come down the line. Who's the teacher's teacher? Yeah, who's the teacher's teacher, you know. So when I was first in India, back in the, you know, the very early 70s, I was, people would always say, who's your, who's your guru? <laughs> and, you know, and then, you, you know, then they were like, oh, okay, you can come in, you know, you can do this <laughs> or that, you know. You know, are you in this for real? Or are you just some kind of a tourist or something? Mm. But then again, you know, the tradition, if you look at the history of yoga, it's always, uh, you know, they're very creative people who are always, you know, bringing in stuff. And so it's a, it's a living tradition and it has to adapt to the modern world and to modern knowledge of the body, the mind, uh, and then how to practice, you know. Because we don't live in, you know, a nice rural village, you know, in the Himalayas or something. Which would be nice. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and so it's always an open question. Like, is this, and so whenever I see something or a magazine, and I always say, oh my God. <laughs> and I say, oh, that article's pretty good. You know, well, that one's like, ah. And, and so I think uh, we should all keep keep working for now to make sure that it uh, comes out okay. <laughs> nice. So say say a student has plateaued, or they feel that they've plateaued in their practice. What are three tips, effective tips, mm. that you can offer? that would allow students to continue to make way into the, you know, infinite growth that is this practice. Mm. Um, one, the plateau is natural, I think, um, in these kinds of systems that mm. the mind creates. Um, because sometimes in what you think is a plateau, you know, you're just looking at it Say so, so, so my strength and flexibility. <laughs> like I plateaued a long time ago. <laughs> and um, but what's happening if you know if you continue to study? So one studying. Mm. Um, even though some people are very adverse to you know that type of thing. If you and for some of us, you know, we, we study books. We study philosophy, we study the traditional teachings, um, or you study any subject that you really find interesting, you know, which could be the, the anthropology of yoga, the sociology of yoga, the history of yoga, um, you know, as a skeptic, you can, but all of those things are just unfold into their background, it's just like fascinating, we study, um, Astronomy <laughs> or biology or medicine. Um, study keeps you because you're putting in information into the system, and a lot of the processing is unconscious during a period of plateau. Uh, and I think for a lot of you know sincere yoga people, there's a lot of processing going on that's unconscious, and then all of a sudden, you know, the whatever those processes are. Some scars spinning with when you're not even thinking about it, but it pops up with a new, a new idea. And um, it's important for practitioners to know that a lot of the you know, sometimes, like a philosophical problem, um, you 
think about it, and it's just, oh, that's paradox, driving me crazy. You just put it on the shelf and uh, take a walk. Or, you know, you're equivalent to walking. And then the mind comes up later with, oh, there's an insight into it. Because, you know, we work on it in the back of our minds. So, to keep studying. So, yeah, yeah, keep interacting. Because we're learning, even from our frustrations. You know, sometimes I'm frustrated with the traffic on my way to the yoga studio. And so we're dealing with our own attachments and anxieties, you know, or little health problems, which seems like a lot of people have little health problems, little imperfections. Everybody does. And it's either. And um, it's also a good practice to practice with other people. Now and then. Yeah. Depends on your personality type. Um, but to come across, you know, uh, a different group of practitioners or something. Uh, can really wake you up and uh, kind of re-inspire you. Yeah. Uh, and so, not that you should go to a different yoga studio, although <laughs> maybe you should check them out. Yeah. Uh, there's a stage in when one becomes a monk in you know, India. Uh, there's a you know, you're then a sannyasin. Technically, you know, your, your job is to study and to practice and then to teach. And one of the first duties is they send you off and you have to go around and you have to visit all these, as many teachers and ashrams as you can find. Um, you know, some of them really bad places run by psychopaths. Others, you, know, you find some little baba off under a tree absolutely delightful but you just keep going and you see oh that manifestation and then you start get a sense of camaraderie with all these other lineages of practice which is important because politics is a huge obstacle in particularly in, well I think in, historically it's always been a big obstacle in yoga like those those Buddhists on the hill they're all crazy <laughs> and one day you get up your courage and you go there and save them. It's just delightful. And so new experiences can be good. Nice. Love that. As we continue to practice and we peel back the layers, getting down to our, our universal truth, what would be something that you would like to remind the world of something that perhaps has surprised you through your years of practice. We're all so similar. And, uh, you know, e even those amongst us who that, you know, are, we don't like, you know, that not that you should go out and try to save grace, you know, Psychopathic people are certain extremists and things. But um, if somehow they can communicate, if you can communicate, they can communicate, then those, which means to actually interface with the environment, um, that that has a huge powerful effect uh, politically spiritually on people and it's the, really the, these ego blocks that turn us into extremists um, where then we do things that hurt and hurt ourselves and others and I think you know and of course yoga can be turned into you know crazy stuff you know you become an extremist uh, <laughs> but I think if you look at the variety of good traditions within yoga. It's, it's exactly what's being broken down, is mm. this 
inability to interface and to communicate. Mm. So that's mine. And that's a great nugget. Connection, communication. Mm. Cool. And I know um, you are writing a book with, with Ms. Mary. Yes. Yeah. When is your book being released? Um, next November, which next will November. be November 2016. Is there a title? The Art of Vinyasa. We'll look out for that. Please. Yeah. <laughs> What's it like to have raised a son and be a father with uh, the years that you have hold, held and uh, being who you are and traveled as you have? What's it mm-hmm. like to, to be a father in, in, your, in your life? Oh, well, it, it's one, challenging. But it awakens in me compassion, mm. love, mm. and moments of excitement. Because <laughs> there are moments where we actually flash and we get it, you know, like, yeah. Um, and that's, I think, true for any parent. You know, it's, it's the ultimate torture, but it's <laughs> totally amazing. Mm. Nice. Maybe you'll see. I hope so. One day. Not soon, but one day. Yeah. One day. Well, to end, we, we like to receive one more nugget that mm-hmm. you would offer to the listeners, to the practitioners, to the teachers, mm-hmm. to the students of yoga. What is a little nugget mm-hmm. that you'd like to offer? Well, um, Well, something that uh, Patavi Joyce turned me on to, quite often, in the literal sense, uh, he called it the Talu Chakra, or the palate, which we initially experience as the roof of the mouth, and then uh, eventually as you know, the roof of the mouth, the soft palate, and the nasal septum, and uh, all of that is. Um, has a, a huge connection to your prana. And one way to feel the palate uh, is to soften your eyes with a steady gaze. And then just to gaze without looking at anything. And uh, it makes this very funny smile. <laughs> And perhaps that smile will reawaken your sense of humor, uh, which will make you a, a better teacher. <laughs> mm, nice. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Well, Richard, thank you. Thanks, so. Thank you so much for revealing what yoga has shared with you in your life and how you're keeping the thread so alive with those that you come in touch with. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Richard is teaching yoga all over the world. You can catch him if you can by checking out his website at yogaworkshop.com. If you are ever in Boulder, Colorado, stop by the Yoga Workshop on Pearl Street and dive into the thread of Ashtanga Yoga. We hope the Yoga Revealed podcast inspires you to take new leaps into the infinite growth that is studying and living yoga. My name is Alec Rubin, and sharing our love for life with you is a dream come true. It means so much to us if you would subscribe to Yoga Revealed on iTunes and rate us with a generous five stars. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube for behind-the-scenes footage of the Yoga Revealed podcast team. Thanks for tuning in. Keep practicing, and may we continue to awaken together to change the world through our yoga. Namaste. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.